Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Through this podcast, we hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus and in living and loving like Him. There are a lot of things that feel different about church right now. Without the ability to collectively and unrestrictedly gather each week in one location, it's easy to wonder if the way we do church will ever go back to normal. Throughout the Bible, we see very clear core values that have guided God's people for thousands of years, no matter the circumstances or season. And we implement these same ideals in shaping ministry here at Vintage Church. In this summer series, we are talking about our core values, knowing that strategies may change, but what matters most will not. This is kind of weird with this still spacing thing out, but one of the coolest things is I can see people. I can see people's faces because sometimes when the crowd is so thick, people just kind of get lost, but welcome to Venice Church. Glad you're here. Whether you made it in the room with us today or whether you're watching online, I'm gonna go ahead and invite you to jump into your Bible. Go to John chapter six. Uh, Because over the last several weeks, we've been leaning into this unique gospel. If you don't know, if you didn't grow up in church, if, you, if this is all new to you, the, the, if you go to your Bible, go in the New Testament and go a few books in, you're gonna find a book written by a guy named John. John was one of the original followers of Jesus and he had a unique relationship with Jesus. He often describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved most. Now, I don't know if Jesus ever told him that or if he just took liberties, kind of like when you claim to be your mama's favorite son. I am my mama's favorite son because I'm my mom's only son. But John has this unique relationship with Jesus. And maybe it's because of that unique relationships or perhaps it's because he waited so late in his life to write down his reflections. But his gospel is different than any of the others. It includes things that some of the others don't and it has a different lens through these experiences. And John writes this down and I remind you when, when John's writing this stuff, he don't realize he's writing the Bible. The Bible was not a term that he would have been familiar with. It would not be a term that anybody would be familiar with for years. We had the Torah and we had the prophets and we had the the poetry books of Proverbs and Psalms, but it was 400 years into the movement of Christianity before we have the Bible as we have the Bible now. Now we had the scriptures. We had these manuscripts, these letters from Paul and these accounts of Jesus' life that were written by people that either experienced it or had researched it themselves. And the Gospel of John has always just fascinated me. I've read it probably more than any other book in all of Scripture, read it through more times than any of the other books of Scripture. When people find Jesus, they always ask me, I guess because I'm a pastor. It's weird, too, when you tell people you're a pastor. People are really cool to you till you tell them you're a pastor, and they get all spiritual. Like, you were dropping F-bombs two seconds ago. Now you hallelujah and praising the Lord. What's the deal? I don't understand. Um, It's happened to me. Uh, But John writes this gospel in such a way that I think it's great. When people find Jesus, I always say, go to the gospel of John. Lean into the life of Jesus told by this special disciple who got to see it up close. And so John just, like he dives right in in chapter one. He doesn't give us Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. He gives us this really a declaration, a testimony as to who Jesus is to him and who he hopes Jesus will be to everybody who reads this book. And everything that he writes after chapter one is trying to get you and I to believe that Jesus is who John thinks he is. 
that he's not just this ordinary carpenter's son from Nazareth. He is the savior of the world, the son of God that came to give us salvation and life. And everything he's writing throughout this book is to get us to believe in that reality. And by the time John gets to what he recalls in John chapter six, this Jesus that he follows has already began to get some notoriety. The story that John tells us in John chapter six is actually not told until Matthew chapter 14. And there's, so there's a lot of things that have happened by the time that this moment happens, this miracle that we're about to lean into. A miracle that even, even if you didn't go to church, you're probably familiar with it because it is centered around your favorite thing, food. Amen, somebody. Y'all didn't grow up, y'all grew up like I did. We did go to covered dish stuff after church but you knew who's deviled eggs to eat and who's not because they were nasty. Okay, we'll keep going. Uh, so John has painted this picture of Jesus and Jesus is getting all this popularity and it's from everybody. It's people from all over the spectrum. As we looked over the last couple of weeks, it's religious officials like Nicodemus and outcasts like the woman at the well. It's people that were bought into the religious system and people who were frustrated by it. And one of the things that really started to get Jesus' attention was not just what, what he did, but what he said. In John chapter five, he heals a man who had been lame at this pool, but it wasn't just that he healed him, he healed him on the Sabbath, which was a no-no. You couldn't, you couldn't do those kind of things on the Sabbath day, but it even wasn't the fact that Jesus healed a man and healed him on the Sabbath that got him in hot water. It's what he would say in explanation of why he felt he had the authority to heal the man on the Sabbath because Jesus would before these religious officials claim not only to be equal with God, but his son. And so this starts freaking people out. And the next thing you know, these big crowds, really more driven by curiosity than commitment are beginning to follow Jesus around. And so as John begins to write what we have down is chapter six. And remember when John's writing this, he's not writing chapter six, verse one. Like those were put in later, you know that, right? John's recalling these things from his memory, these experiences, these encounters that, that blew his mind as he walked with Jesus. In John chapter six, Jesus and his disciples find themselves kind of out in the outskirts, out in the middle of nowhere, out where those of us in Randolph County would call the boondocks. And it's about lunchtime and the people are hungry. And Jesus looks and he notices the crowd and he knows that they, they need to be fed. And he looks over at one of his disciples named Philip. He says, Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And Philip's taken aback like, Jesus, there's thousands of people here. The Bible says it's the feeding of 5,000. But if you ever noticed, that was only counting the men. So if you add in the women and the children, this could, have, this could be 15, 20,000 people. Let's just say if half of them were married and half of them had a few kids, let's just rough, let's, probably a safe estimate is probably 20,000 people. So from now on, we'll tell the story. We'll call it the feeding of the 20,000, okay? The feeding, the feeding of Panther Stadium, which is a lot more than 20,000, but just go with me, okay? And John says, Jesus, it would take a half of year's wages just to buy enough food to give everybody a bite. A bite, not a belly full. Like we're not buying everybody an eight count nugget and a waffle fry. Just, just to buy enough food to give everybody a bite, much less a belly full, would take half a year's wages. And then one of his other disciples says, hey, we got this little boy's lunch over here. And I, I wonder if like one of them was saying it 
kind of just joking around. Yeah, we got this boy's lunch. That one. Yeah, that'll, that'll be it. Um, what? And Jesus takes this little boy's lunch and says, that'll be enough. That's all you got. But all you got will be enough once I bless it. Come on. All you got will be enough once I bless it. And one of the gospel writers says he takes this little boy's lunch and he prays and he thanks God for listening to him and they always listen to him. And then and he tells him, he says, have him, have him sit down. Which again is strange. Because I'm thinking 20,000 people, y'all better line up. We're just going to serve y'all. He says, no, have them sit down. And the disciples are going to distribute the food. It's just a reminder from the beginning when we follow Jesus, he calls us to go to people and not make them come to us. And he has them sit down. And then I, I want, this is in the Bible where I want more details. Like, what does this look like? The disciples, did he bless the food and it automatically just go, like, you know, multiply everywhere? Or did he put a, a little bit into everybody's like a basket or something like that? Because later we'll learn that they did have some baskets because they're gonna take the leftovers with them in just a minute. And another thing too, I just had to picture this in my mind. So they're, they're walking through this crowd of people and they're just ha- giving them food, kind of one at a time, his disciples going through. And number, if, if this is a field of 20,000 people, just picture that in your mind. You ever been in a, in a setting with that many people? How much acreage it probably would have had to just take up. And the disciples are walking through a field, like just giving out the food. Peter, I keep giving it out, I still got more, me too. Like I'm halfway through, like, and, and, you, and is he just kind of, just, food's just coming from nowhere. And the disciples are just, their minds are just blown by the fact they keep moving through this crowd. And what should have run out with the very first person, it just continues to be available. And you know, there's that one person sitting in the back saying, by the time he gets to us, there ain't gonna be none left. We shouldn't, we should, I told you, Ethel, we should have got here earlier. <laughs> Ethel, I don't even know you. But somehow, as they make their way through this crowd, every time they go to give somebody some food, there's always enough. And they just keep giving it out. And I can't, the disciples, must, their minds just must have been blown. And again, they're not getting a nibble. They're getting that Thanksgiving day, <sighs> belly full, you know what I'm saying? Like the kind that like, you got that one uncle on Thanksgiving that sits back in the chair. Because he just, he, he waits till everybody else eats and then he goes in behind everybody can, so nobody can see how much food he really gets. And he just eats it all. Like that big belly full. And they like, Jesus takes this meal and he multiplies it. And somehow the disciples, as they're distributing it, not only have enough to give everybody sitting in that field, they're full. After it's all said and done, they go around and pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers that in the hands of Jesus, something that seems so small can become extremely significant. That in the hands of Jesus, something that seems so small can become something extremely significant. That no matter how small it seems, when it's in the hands of and blessed by Jesus, it can be more significant than you ever thought possible. 12 years ago, there was just a few of us that used to sit around a table in my mom's basement dreaming about what Vintage Church might be. We had no money, no place to meet, nothing. 
And now on Friday, we just released more music that will be listened to in dozens of countries all around the world. There's a church that's meeting in little old Randleman, and can't nothing good come from Randleman, that has people watching these gatherings right now in places like Australia with us every single weekend. It may seem small, but in the hands of Jesus. It can become something more significant than you ever thought possible. That's what he does. And this miracle is such a mind-blowing experience that look at what happens. John chapter six, verse 14 says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. (laughs) That this was such an impressive miracle that these people were all of a sudden convinced he was somebody. So much so, they would make him king. You know how to become king? Feed folks. (laughs) The way to to becoming king is through their belly. Like they're so blown away and it wasn't just the food. Like they knew They knew Jesus wasn't in the catering business. Can you imagine? They knew that he wasn't walking around with a food truck. But somehow, as the disciples made their way through this crowd, they all not only had a bite, but they had their full. And in this moment, they're just enamored with what Jesus has done. So much so that Jesus can tell, they they wanna make me king. But the fact that they wanted to make him king just further indicates they had no idea who he was. Because he didn't come to be an earthly king, he came to institute a heavenly kingdom. And so he says, y'all still don't get it. There's evidence that you still don't understand what I came to do. And so before you try to force me to become something that I, you're gonna try to force me to become something I never intended to be. Can you imagine that? People trying to force God to be something he never said he would be. And he withdraws to the mountain. Verse 16, John chapter six. But when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were very appropriately frightened. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd had stayed on the opposite side of the lake, the opposite shore of the lake, realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten and eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum and searched for Jesus. So Jesus bounces out as soon as this miracle is over. He realizes he's gotta get away. Because these people, they, they, they had such a good meal, they wanna make him king. 
And his disciples decide that it's time to go get into the boat and go across the water. But Jesus isn't with them. And it, apparently this was a rough night on the water. The wind had been blowing and hours had gone by and they had rowed and rowed and rowed and struggled. And John says we had only gotten about three or four miles, which would have been maybe around halfway across this body of water. And all of a sudden, in the darkness, in the shadows, steam coming off the lake, they see a figure walking across the water. And they are scared to death. And Jesus knows, don't be afraid. If I'm in the boat, I'm like, why? You're walking on the water, and that's weird. Never seen that before. But says they didn't, they didn't recognize Jesus. And that's why they were afraid. Because you see, it's, it's easy to resist Jesus when he shows up at a time and a place that you did not expect. It's easy to resist Jesus when he shows up at a time and a place that you did not expect. It's easy to resist Jesus when he shows up in a time and a place that you did not expect, but perhaps need him most. And there are so often times in our lives that Jesus is walking on the water in the midst of our storm and our response is fear instead of faith because we didn't expect to see him in that place, in that time and in that way. But he's still there. And it says, once they finally recognized him and realized who he was and actually allowed him to get into the boat, it says when they were willing to let him get in the boat, which says to me, there was a time when they weren't willing to allow him in. And did you notice what happened? The moment he gets into the boat, it says immediately they made it to the other side. <laughs> they had spent hours and energy rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing and barely got halfway. But the moment that Jesus stepped into the situation, they made it across. Because when Jesus steps in, he can take you places faster and, and more efficiently than you ever could and all the energy by yourself. that you can row all night. And what you can do in and of your own strength is nothing compared to what will happen when Jesus steps into the scene. They make it across. But then the people from the meal, the people that had their full, recognize that Jesus has gone. And they even start to kind of put it together. That we know the disciples went without Jesus, but only one boat left. But now somehow Jesus and the disciples are both across and they're on the hunt for Jesus. They wanna go figure out what happened. They're still pursuing him. And the Bible says, when they get across, they're like, Jesus, when did you get here? We're glad you're here. It's been a while. We're hungry, you gonna feed us again? They come with that expectation. Man, if Jesus did that for lunch yesterday, what will he do for breakfast? And they're expecting Jesus to do today what he did yesterday. And that's a bad pattern that we get in, isn't it? We expect God to do what he did, how he did it, when he did it, the way he did it, when maybe he's got something new in mind. But Jesus knows their hearts. 
See, it may seem like they're pursuing Jesus because they love him and they, they're really believing in who he is, but Jesus knew their real motivation for pursuing him. Look at verse 26. It says, Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're not looking for me because you really understand who I am. You're only pursuing me for what I can give you. You're not coming after me because you realize that there's something unique and special about me. You're not coming after me because you really understand that I am the one and only path to salvation. You're coming after me because you got blessed. You got your belly full and you're hungry again. That's why you're here. But he says, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, can I tell you what I really believe Jesus meant by this? He's saying, don't work for food that spoils, but that which will lead to eternal life. Don't tether your belief in me to something that is temporary. Because if you tether me to the material thing that you got from me, when that thing is no longer present, your belief in me will be absent. Don't tether your belief into me, in me into something physical, material, and temporary. Because when that thing is no longer present, your faith in me will be absent if that thing is gone. Y'all with me? He says, don't, don't work for food that spoils, but that which leads to eternal life. And then they asked the question that they had always been wrestling with in verse 28. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What must we do to do the works God requires? What, what do we, we gotta do to get right with God? Because they were in a, a do religion. What do we gotta do to be married with God? How many hoops we gotta jump through? How many times we gotta go show up to church? How much money we gotta give? What kind of clothes we gotta wear? What do we gotta do to be made right with God? That that had been so ingrained in their spirit that they had believed in it. And they were like, maybe you can tell us because so far everything we've done seems to leave us empty. What do we gotta do? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And I know that sounds more simple than you've ever been taught but what you do is never gonna be good enough, but it's in whom you believe that will change everything. Come on, somebody. So you believe. Verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? What? Hey, Jesus, give us a sign. What was yesterday? Really? That's where I'm, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm throat punching somebody like, what is wrong with y'all? Were you not here yesterday? Weren't, hey, you, you were sitting in the back of the crowd and you still got a belly full too. What, what do you think that was about? I said, Jesus, what sign will you do? I believe in you, Jesus. If, 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 you, if you do a little trick for us, Jesus. Like Jesus is some lounge act in Vegas, just a magician to, try to get you his affection. What will, what will you do? Our ancestors, verse 31, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. He says, see Jesus, we remember. 
our ancestors, they got to eat bread that just rained down from heaven. Will you do something like that? I wanna see something cool. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. It sounds like that bread from Outback. It's good. <laughs> Verse 35. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my, father, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Like, I've got this different kind of bread. It's different. Every other time you've ever had bread, even that great bread that fell from he heaven, the manna that your ancestors ate, they ate it, but hours later, they still had hunger pains once again. But what I'm offering is something really, really different. It's a new kind of bread. It's a new alternative to the things that you've put hope in before. And when you feast on this bread, you never go hungry again. When you understand all that I am offering you, you realize that you will find lasting fulfillment. And then it gets weird. It gets really weird. Verse 51, you ready for it to get weird? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the world, for, for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my body, my blood, is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And right then people said, ew. And now we read that and we're on this side of the cross. We know about the last supper and the imagery of all this. And so we read that and we, we celebrate, oh, thank you, Jesus, give me my cracker and juice. But for these people, they're thinking, Jesus is a cannibal. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. And again, also understand Jewish culture. They didn't have to do with anything with blood. And so this whole conversation just went sideways. And look at how they respond. On hearing it, 
many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Like this makes no sense. Even his disciples, I would, I would submit to you, were a little bit weirded out by this. Because there was oftentimes that Jesus said things that in the moment disciples would even later write, we didn't, we didn't know what he meant by this when he said it. It didn't make sense when we first heard it. And it didn't make sense till later. And then verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There were many in the crowd that day that said, okay, we've heard enough. That I don't care how incredible yesterday was, now it's uncomfortable. And how quickly can uncomfortable overshadow incredible? And they'd heard enough. Even though they had sat on that field, watched that miracle, had their full. Even though they couldn't explain how Jesus went from one side of the lake to the other without a boat. Even though there were all these things to point to the reality of Jesus being different. The moment Jesus said something that they didn't understand and made them uncomfortable, they decided to give up. And Jesus, watching all this happen, verse 67, he looks at his disciples and he asks them a question. You don't want to leave me too, do you? You know why I think he asked it? Because he knew they were, they were possibly just as flustered as everybody else. For them, even, it didn't make sense. I don't really understand. He knew, he knew their hearts. He knew that they were probably, just like everybody else, struggling to understand what Jesus meant when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. You don't wanna leave me too, do you? You don't wanna bail out? I know you, I can see that you're uncomfortable just like everybody else. Do you wanna leave? Peter says, where would we go? We, we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. They've heard enough, but we've seen too much. We've seen too much. We've seen what you can do. Jesus, Every time I went back into that basket to give people food yesterday for hours and hours as we fed those 20,000, somehow there was still food. That's just not possible in the presence of anybody else. Peter, I've been a fisher my whole life, never seen anybody walk on water, but somehow you did it. I rode till my arms almost gave out last night and could get nowhere. You got in the boat and we made it across. That in your presence, there are things that are possible that aren't possible anywhere else. So yeah, we're uncomfortable just like everybody else, but we won't let the uncomfortable overshadow the undeniable because we believe you are who you said you are. And even though we can't make sense of what we see right now, what we've seen is too much to allow us to walk away.
seem too much. So we're gonna believe that this is just the start of what's to come. That we know we've only just begun. So we're gonna keep going, following you and trusting you. And even in a season when so much around us makes no sense and we're uncomfortable, we lean in to what we know that it's undeniable Jesus, in your presence, you take small and make it significant. Jesus, even in the middle of the storm, you can have a moment that makes even the storm sacred and does something beautiful. So now we're not going anywhere because you're the only one. It's just you, Jesus. It's just you. So Father, I pray that when we find ourselves in those moments, when we too can't understand what you're doing and you're saying things that are so outside the realm of what we can comprehend that we don't let the uncomfortable the uncertain overshadow the undeniable because God, we've seen you work. We know who you are. And so God, in a season like this, we lean into that knowing that in your presence is the best place for us to be. So even though we're scared or even though we have questions, we know that God, you're not, you're not our best option, you're our only option. So we lean into you and trust you to continue to give us peace and strength. And we walk with you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope that what you experience today inspires you to live and love like Jesus. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage and grow deeper in your faith by downloading the Vintage Church app. Through this app, you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, additional podcasts, and opportunities to connect in community. You can easily download our app by going to app.vintagechurch.net. We hope you join us again soon.